Good morning. Today's reading is from Proverbs 17, 17, 20, verse 6, and 27, verse 17. Hear the word of the Lord. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's not so much what we have in this life that matters. It's what we do with what we have. The alphabet is fine, but it's what we do with it that matters most. Making words like friend and love, that's what really matters. Good morning. Guys, that is my hero, and I think Fred Rogers is right. Choosing the challenging work of building friendships and choosing the costly path of love, that's what one day we'll be so glad we did. Uh, my name is Tyler, and I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Community, and I am so delighted that you decided to be with us this morning. This morning, uh, we are going to be talking about something that I would say everyone wants, but few might say they have. Uh, this morning, we're going to be talking about building deep, solid friendships, friendships that last, the kind of friendships that make life richer, fuller, and better, the kinds of friendships that bring us joy, um, that bring us comfort, that challenge us to be better, and that remind us that we're loved just the way we are. You know, it's been said that good friends are hard to find, but I think it would be truer to confess that good friendships are hard to build. They take work and diligence. They require patience and forgiveness, and there are no shortcuts. They often grow in fits and starts, and unfortunately, I believe that many are interested in experiencing the outcome of this kind of work and labor, but few are interested in the effort. Uh, because here's what I've come to discover. Many people want a friend. Few people want to be a friend. I mean, indeed, I'm telling you, in my line of work, many people have told me, Tyler, I just wish I had someone who would be there for me. I wish I had a, you know, a best buddy, a sweet sister, that call any time with anything kind of friend in my life. And even as they tell me this, their life kind of screams, but my plate feels a little too full. Uh, my problems feel a little too heavy. My needs a little too important to me to be there for anyone else right now. And I leave those conversations thinking, it's no wonder you're so frustrated. Many want a friend, few want to be a friend, and good friendships are hard to build. I think the children's poet Shel Silverstein uh, writes well about the ways that many tend to approach friendship. Uh, he says, I've discovered a way to stay friends forever. There's really nothing to it. I simply tell you what to do, and you do it. Um, and this silly children's poem, I think it holds so much truth. It summarizes what I would like to call the my friends exist for me approach for friendship. The my friends exist for me approach. You've seen it before. Maybe you felt this way yourself. It's the idea that my friends exist so that I have something to do on a Friday night. My friends exist so that I can try new restaurants and see new movies with someone. My friends exist so that I won't feel lonely. My friends exist for me, and this approach to friendship, as we'll see this morning, is highly misguided. It's bad advice. 
Fortunately, God in his infinite wisdom has given us a better foundation for lasting friendship. God has provided us with better instruction and better practices that will help us build friendships that last. God speaks a better word about friendships. And so does Uncle Shel Silverstein, for he also writes in one of my favorite poems of his, uh, how many slams in an old screen door? Well, depends how loud you shut it. Uh, how many slices in a bread? Depends how thin you cut it. How much good inside a day? Depends how good you live them. We call that stewardship here. Uh, how much love inside a friend? It depends how much you give them. How much love inside a friend depends how much you give them. That, my friends, I think is a great launching point for us this morning. So as today, uh, and we continue in our Restart Smart series as we move forward in our study of the book of Proverbs, learning from God's infinite wisdom by studying this divinely inspired collection of wise sayings that were compiled by King Solomon, we're going to find ourselves picking up where we left off last week. We'll find ourselves looking once more at friendship and asking, how do we build friendships that can last? Uh, but before we dive into the specifics of the book of Proverbs, I think we need to do a little cultural work, a little theological work. I think we need to put friendship in context. Um, indeed, before we can go any further this morning, I think we could all benefit from a brief biblical conversation about what friendship is and what friendship can be. Because as desirable as friendship is, I think it is sorely misunderstood. Indeed, in kind of our hypersexualized age, friendship has been devalued and I would argue sometimes viewed with suspicion. Um, we've said sometimes explicitly, many times implicitly, that romantic relationships are the only relationships worth committed effort, that that's where real intimacy is found. And then friendships, uh, you just kind of settle along the way. That's for, you know, fun and a good selfie when you're out and about. I mean, in the process, I'm afraid we've lost a robust biblical deep, comprehensive definition of friendship. But the Bible does paint a different picture. In fact, I would argue that the Bible teaches that friendship is a significant, devoted relationship between two people. And in fact, in Ecclesiastes 4 and 9, we read that two are better than one. And my hunch is at this point in our romance-saturated culture, right, it'd be easy for us to assume that, oh, two are better than one. This verse is going to end with some kinds of declaration about the goodness of romantic love, right? Two are better than one. But what does the text really say? Because they have a good return for the work, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. It's really a verse about friendship. You see, the Bible from beginning up to end upholds the value of friendship. Uh, it presents friendship as a significant, devoted relationship between two people. In fact, the theologian Drew Hunter says that you could summarize the entire story of the Bible through the category of friendship. He says, in the beginning, we walked with God in friendship, but then we walked away, and now God is befriending us again. Hunter concludes that the language of friendship is sufficient for summarizing what the entire Bible is all about. And indeed, Hunter notes that Adam is portrayed as God's friend. He notes that Abraham is explicitly called a friend of God in both the Old and New Testaments. In Exodus, Hunter notes, we read that Moses spoke with God face to face as a man speaks with his friend. And let's not forget the stories of David and Jonathan, of Ruth and Naomi, real historical accounts of devoted, faithful, biblical, flourishing friendships. And then, of course, when we arrive to the New Testament, 
We see Jesus face misunderstanding and criticism because he will befriend those that the religious leaders of his day will not. He was the friend of sinners after all, one who interacted and ate with those that people who thought they were you know, too good to do that wouldn't even go near. So it, it's clear throughout the entire biblical text, friendship is presented as a universal human good, an avenue of real intimacy available to all people Uh, regardless of marital status, race, gender, age. But sadly, I'd say, in our culture, we have devalued friendship. Outside the church, we've elevated passionate romance. Um, Inside the church, we've glorified marriage. And I would say that everyone has suffered. Um, Indeed, far too many Christian communities specifically have insisted that marriage is the magic relationship that will meet an individual's every relational need. Um, And I've heard... That's simply not the case. No. Uh, Let me describe the real relationship between marriage and friendship for a bit. I would say that though not all friendships are marriages, all marriages are friendships. What do I mean by that? I think that marriage indeed is built on the foundation of friendship. And that's why many of the Proverbs that we'll discuss this morning will help both your friendships, if you have those, and your marriages, if you are married, because marriages are friendship, but indeed they are also something more. Uh, They are friendship with the added component of covenant commitment and sexual intimacy, right? So it's friendship at the foundation, but it's got some added dimensions. But being married doesn't mean that you no longer need any friendships outside your marriage. Um, Rather, marriages and friendships can flourish side by side, and they should, but I'd say sometimes we just forget that. But I also want to say that while those who are married have found, I believe, a truly dear friend in their spouse, Um, it doesn't mean they've found the only friend they've ever need. And while those who are unmarried might have different life rhythms than those who are married, it doesn't mean that friendship between the two is impossible. Now, I want to be very, very clear. I know I'm not married, but hear me when I say this. I love marriage. Um, It is a beautiful thing. In fact, I said Wednesday night, I love it razors. I love marriage. I love weddings. If you invite me to your wedding, I will dance my little booty off. I love marriage. Um, I love it, and I'm not here to undermine it or tear it down in any way. I think it's beautiful. I think it's designed by God. I think it's wonderful. I just want to put friendship as well back where God intended it. Um, I want to remind us all that friendship, like marriage, is a relationship that God designed for our good. All right? So how do we build friendships that can last? How do we get better at creating and sustaining the kind of flourishing friendships that God imagined? Well, here we are. We're getting ready to dive into the Proverbs that Sherry just read so well. First, uh, how do we do it? I think we cultivate self-awareness. Uh, we cultivate self-awareness. What do I mean by that? Proverbs 20 verse 5 says, The purposes of a person's heart are deep waters, but one who has insight draws them out. What's going on deep inside us, Proverbs teaches, is difficult to analyze or understand precisely. But those who are wise, uh, those who seek to embody the skillful art of living in God's world that we've described throughout this series, those who, who want to live with wisdom, take time to explore their own hearts, to assess their own motives and desires, to honestly evaluate what makes them tick. to, To name and identify some old wounds and to point out the effects of those wounds, to own up to the good and the bad and the ugly things that shape their own decision making. Those who are wise, Proverbs says, they cultivate self awareness. They cultivate self awareness. And self awareness, church, it is critical to building friendships that can last. 
because someone who is self-aware is able to recognize when they're being unreasonable, uh, when they're being demanding, uh, when they're reacting to a current circumstance out of a former hurt. And isn't that what you want in a friendship? Uh, those who are self-aware have taken time to look into their own hearts so that they can respond and care well for those whom God has brought into their life as friends. <coughs> but what does self-awareness look like in a friendship? Well, allow me to share just one example uh, from my own life. Some of you who know me uh, know from experience that I am an absolutely terrible texter. Okay, very bad texter. Perhaps you've sent me a text and you've gotten a response like 36 hours later. I just am not great. I'm improving um, in some ways. I'm trying to get better, but I am a poor texter. I'm just not that responsive all the time to my phone. But when I do look at my phone, I'll be very honest, there are some texts I love opening and others that I hate receiving. And one of my least favorite texts in all the world is three words long. And every time I receive it, I feel like this knot in my stomach, my temperature rises, I get defensive. Uh, here's the text. It's the text that says, I miss you. I miss you. Right? And here's why it bothers me so much. Again, self-awareness. Here's why it bothers me. Because I've always been this like real aggressive achiever. I've always had like 10 or 11 tasks going on at once and then a little side hustle on the side. This is true of me in high school. It remains true to this day. I just love getting things done. And as much as I love to achieve, I hate letting people down. So here's the tension. In all chapters of my life, in every season that I can think of, I've always had kind of a lot going on and I've wanted to be there for my friends. But then I get this text, this innocent little text that says, I miss you. And I tend to read it as an indictment. I see those words, I miss you, and I instantly feel like my friend is trying to say they're mad at me for being so busy and I've let them down by not being around more, but all they're really saying is I miss you. But because of my own perspective, because of the way my heart thinks and feels and processes the world, I received this three-word text, a text that many friends have sent me as a tender reminder that they're thinking of me, and I think, gosh, they are so, so, so mad at me. And in those moments, it's self-awareness that pumps the brakes. And self-awareness helped me say, hey, cool down, Tyler. I don't think they're mad. They're just your friend. You know, and they miss you. And self-awareness is critical to building friendships that can last. If we want to build lasting relationships and friendships, we must cultivate self-awareness. So how do we do that? Well, self-awareness has grown in many contexts. Um, counseling is a helpful tool, and so is journaling. Research has actually shown that writing down things we're thankful for and identifying things that frustrate us uh, give us insight in the nooks and crannies of our heart. Uh, I also think we can pray and ask God for insight into our hearts. He knows them, after all, really well, better than we know ourselves. Or we could even ask a trusted person to identify strengths and positive habits that we have, as well as maybe some habits and attitudes that we might be blind to. I mean, fundamentally, self-awareness grows as we adopt a posture of attentiveness to our own hearts. So I want to ask you this morning, uh, when was the last time you looked into your heart? When was the last time you asked God to search your heart, test your thoughts, and reveal insight to you so that you might walk renewed in His paths? I mean, how do we build friendships that last first? We cultivate self-awareness. We cultivate self-awareness. But becoming a better friend isn't just about improving the ways that we understand ourselves. It's also about adjusting postures that we have towards others. So the second lesson that Proverbs teaches us when it comes to building friendships that last is that we must commit to radical candor. 
We must commit to radical candor. And what do I mean by radical candor? Well, Kim Scott, a remarkable business leader in the tech industry, uh, who's led online sales at, I think, AdSense and YouTube um, and operations at Google, uh, she writes that radical candor is the ability to challenge directly and show you care personally at the same time. Right? The commitment to challenge directly and show you care personally at the same time. It's the commitment to take a risk and speak the truth to a person who matters to you. And Scott's definition of radical candor reminds me a lot of Proverbs 27, verse 6, which says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. They also remind me of Proverbs 27, 17, which says, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. Both these Proverbs are pointing to the same fact. Someone who loves you well will tell you honestly what you need to hear. And even though it can be remarkably difficult to tell the truth to those we love, it's what a good friend does. It's how we build friendships that last I would say that radical candor matters for two reasons. First, it's how we care for our friends. It's how we care for our friends. Let me try to explain it to you this way. You all know, church, that I love Kelly Clarkson. Uh, she is a national treasure and the greatest thing to ever come from American Idol, period. Um, but do you remember when American Idol was the most popular show on television. And if you do, do you remember how each season began? There was the audition phase, right? So about for three, four weeks, it seems. I mean, it was a big chunk of the show. People who could not carry a tune at all would appear before Paula and Simon and Randy and belt out, you know, this power ballad that had just been on their hearts and find themselves embarrassed on national television. It happened season after season after season. And whenever that would happen, there would always be friends and family waiting outside the audition room with Ryan Seacrest, and I would find myself wondering, hey, don't you care about your son? No, don't you care about your daughter? Don't you care about your friend? Why would you encourage them to be here when you know they can't sing? <laughs> and Proverbs tells us that a true friend gives faithful wounds. A friend speaks honest words. A friend says what needs to be said, even if it hurts for a little while, always with the goal of keeping their friend from greater heartache or from greater hurt. I mean, radical candor, it matters for two reasons. It's how we care for our friends. We tell them honestly when they're headed in a bad direction so that things don't get worse, but it also is how we grow in our friendship. You know, I would argue that the greatest obstacle to radical candor in a relationship is a lack of trust, a lack of trust. We're scared that honesty might cause a friend to reject or ignore us, so we walk the path of politeness and shallowness instead of the path of honesty. You know, a few months ago, um, I realized I needed to share some tough truth with a dear friend, and I was really nervous about our conversation. And I also found myself aware of my tendency to pull punches, um, to tone down my feelings, to stop short of saying everything that needs to be said. Sometimes that's, that's difficult for me. So I decided to write a letter to this friend. I decided that I'd put down my words and thoughts on paper, and then I would like, read this letter to the friend in person when we got together. I'm a little awkward, I know, but it's like, this is going to make me commit to the words I need to say. But I want to share one paragraph um, from that letter, one of the opening paragraphs. Here's what I said. I wrote, I know that when you love someone, you owe them honesty, but I also know that when you love someone, you often feel an impulse to protect them, right, to shield them from hurt or pain. 
I'm asking now that you'd forgive me for trying to protect you when I should have been speaking more honestly. I'm sorry, here's what I need to say. Now, church, I know that radical candor requires courage. Uh, it requires trust, trust that our friend will receive what we have to say and to understand that what it is that we're saying is indeed motivated by love. But here's what we have to remember. When we speak honestly, we give our friendships an opportunity to grow. Indeed, radical candor is one of the ways that our friendship grows. It's how we demonstrate to ourselves and to our friends that we believe our relationship is strong enough to withstand honest words. As the playwright Oscar Wilde who said, a good friend always stabs you in the front. Um, it's just great life advice or a tattoo. Um, so are you admitted to radical candor in your closest friendships? Have you withheld truth from someone for fear of being rejected? Have you been receptive to other people's truth or to God's truth? I mean, if you want your friendships to grow, your friendships with another, or your friendship, your relationship with the Lord, you must commit to radical candor towards speaking honestly and receiving honest words spoken to you in love. We must be sure, even as we speak again, that our honesty is motivated by sincere interest for the good of our friend, and not just a sincere interest to say whatever's on our mind. Right, so how do we build friendships that last? Well, we cultivate self-awareness. We commit to radical candor. And third, say we learn from Proverbs that we need to make forgiveness a habit. We make forgiveness a habit. Proverbs 17.9 instructs, whoever covers an offense seeks love, but those who repeat a matter separates close friends. Whoever covers an offense, which is a Hebrew way to speak about forgiveness because sins were covered at the altar. So whoever covers an offense, whoever forgives an offense, whoever says, I'm choosing to cover over this offense and say that it's a settled matter, whoever does that, Proverbs says, seeks love. But those who repeat the matter, those who ruminate on it, those who bring it up again and again bring separation between friends. I got to say, I actually love the way that Proverbs 17.9 is translated in the New Living Translation. I think it gets a little, heart, or a little closer to the heart of the Hebrew here. So there it's translated as saying, love prospers when a fault is forgiven, but dwelling on it separates close friends. I mean, isn't that the truth? People say that there are only things certain in life are death and taxes, uh, but I think you can also count on this. People will let you down. It's the third one, right? Death, taxes, and being let down. Uh, people will let you down. People will break your trust. People will hurt and offend you, including your friends. It's inevitable. But the ability to forgive, the ability to cut some slack and offer some understanding, that's what allows friendships to grow over the long haul. Now, to be very clear, I'm not saying that we let friends run all over us and do whatever they want without consequence. I mean, as Gabe taught last week, boundaries matter and boundaries are good. I'm just simply saying that if we want our friendships to flourish, if we want relationships to flourish, we need to make forgiveness a habit. We've got to be quick to extend grace and run towards those who have offended us. Now, I know that this is remarkably difficult. Know that some of you have taken the risk and allowed yourself to be known by a dear friend, uh, only to be rejected, uh, to be stepped on, to be hurt, 
Uh, I know some of you have uh, like forgiven a friend and then found yourself taken advantage of. Some of you have uh, seen up close how relationships can fail miserably. You've been told to stay in a relationship that you shouldn't have stayed in, uh, or you've felt regret and shame for how you handled an offense in the past. I know that all those realities are probably true in this room. Forgiveness is messy work, and it can be particularly hard to forgive a friend. In fact, David, uh, King Solomon's father, wrote about this reality when he composed Psalm 55. I'm speaking of a very personal betrayal there. He writes, if an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. And if a foe were rising against me, I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God as we talked among the worshipers. David says about this hurt, hey, I could handle this hurt if it came from an enemy or a foe, but because it's you, a friend who has wounded me, it feels exceptionally heavy. Right? I know that it is difficult work. Forgiveness is costly, but it is the very mean by which we allow our wounded hearts to open up once again to God and to those who have wounded us. It was Lewis Smedes who says, to forgive is to set a prisoner free and to discover that prisoner was you. And I think Lewis Speeds is right, because who am I to disagree with him? But I would also add that to forgive is to allow a friendship to grow again and to discover that vibrant life can follow deep hurt. So what about you? Think about your relationships. Again, this wisdom applies to all manner of relationships we'd be in. This is God's wisdom for relationships, for friendships, marriages, coworkers. Um, are you withholding forgiveness from anyone? Have you closed your heart? Um, would making forgiveness a habit allow your friendships to grow again? It's one way we build relationships that last. And finally, finally, we build friendships that last when we embrace self-sacrifice. When we embrace self-sacrifice. Proverbs 17, 17 declares, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. A true friend is one who commits to the love of the other, who is present in good and bad times, who steps up even when times get tough, and who loves at all times self-sacrificially. You know, we begin our time this morning by placing friendship in context, and now once more, I think we need to own up to one way our culture has distorted our view of friendship. I would say that in faith communities, I'd argue it's far too common for us to speak of self-sacrifice only in the context of marriage. And I want to be clear, it belongs in the context of marriage, but that is not the only context in which self-sacrifice is invited of us from Jesus. That's simply not reflective of God's heart for friendship. In other words, marriage is not the only relationship in which God invites us to embrace self-sacrifice. We make sacrifices in friendships as well. A sacrifice can look like giving a friend the space they need when they need it. Um, it can look like remaining committed to a friendship even when it doesn't feel great or when it's not what you want. Um, it's biting your tongue when you would rather gossip and bad mouth. It's showing up even when it inconveniences us. It's helping someone move. Uh, it's accepting where the other is, even if it complicates things for you. A friend loves at all times. And we can only build friendships that last when we embrace self-sacrifice. 
Now, how can I be so confident that this is something God desires from even our friendship? How do I know that language of sacrifice and language of friendship go together? Well, I look to the example of Jesus. Because when Jesus came to earth 2,000 years ago, when Jesus became fully human to save humanity, when he arrived as God in the flesh and lived and worked and walked among us, when Jesus came to earth, he didn't have a spouse, and he didn't have a partner, and he wasn't married, but he did have a best friend, and that friend's name was John. And John was with Jesus from the beginning of his ministry. He was one of the first disciples Jesus invited to follow him. And John spent hundreds of weeks with Jesus. And after Jesus died and resurrected and ascended into heaven, John wrote about his time with Jesus and the gospel that bears his name. And in John chapter 15, John records Jesus' final tender words to those he loved most. And in that text, I think we hear the words of Jesus through the pen of his best friend saying, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I commanded. I no longer call you servants because a servant doesn't know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, my Father will give you. And this is my command, love each other. Church, Jesus came to earth to offer us his friendship. He lived on this earth as one who was self-aware. He knew his motivation. He knew what God had invited him to do, and he knew when he needed to go for it, when he needed to withdraw and pray. He was honest, speaking with radical candor, even when he knew it might lead to rejection. He forgave freely and generously. And in fact, even on his own cross, he forgave those who were murdering him, even as he took every one of our betrayals, our mishaps, our rejections and pains upon himself so that we might be forgiven. And Jesus embodied self-sacrifice. He loved us with all he had. In fact, he is love. John teaches us that as well. And in his death on the cross, Jesus provided the opportunity not only for us to be friends with him, but for us to be in relationship with others, to have friendships with others as well, because his sacrifice allows us to live in deep, committed relationships with others modeled after his love for us. In other words, you can build friendships that last because Jesus has called you his friend. He has shown you what it means to love and to love well, and he has invited every one of us to follow his example. So how do we build friendships that last? Well, we cultivate self-awareness. We commit to radical candor. We make forgiveness a habit, and we embrace self-sacrifice. This is the wise path towards friendship that God has laid out for us in his word. But in our final moments together, because I love you and I love friendship, and because I want you to have these kind of rich, full, beautiful friendships that Scripture presents, I just want to ask you this. Um, are you the kind of friend you'd want? Are you the kind of friend you'd want? Or in other words, to borrow Jesus' uh, words a little bit, are you friending others as you would have others friend unto you? If your answer to that question is no, I'm praying that this morning God will reveal to you steps you can take to build your capacity to be a good friend to others. 
because it is a vital relationship that God invites us into to experience friendship with others, and it's an avenue that He wants to use to form us more into Christ-likeness. You know, about 30 minutes ago, Mr. Rogers told us that choosing the challenging work of building friendships is what really matters. Um, And in another interview, right before he died, Mr. Rogers said that the greatest thing we can do is help somebody know that they're loved and capable of loving. And I would say this morning that that's the gift that Jesus has given us. And now we have that opportunity to pass that gift along to others. Let's be the kind of people who give the gift of love to one another in friendship. All right? Will you join me in prayer? Well, Lord, thank you. Half of all the good things you've created, we do thank you this morning for friendship. It's a brilliant idea. It's a wonderful thing that humans can be connected with one another and be there for each other in times of difficulty and times of joy to walk beside one another and experience the great richness that comes from that connection, but also be challenged to grow within the context of that relationship. Friendships are brilliant design, Lord. We fall short in so many ways in friendship. I am asking this morning that you would give each and every one of us wisdom into how we can grow in our ability to befriend others. You've invited us to follow you in the costly path of friendship by learning how to sacrifice for others and love others well, Lord. Give us wisdom is how you'd call us to do that this week in our own relationships, in our own contexts. And help us to continue to grow and be formed and refined within the context of friendship. God, we want to grow. We want to be people who love like you loved and who care like you cared. So we're asking for your help. It's in your powerful name we pray. Amen.